My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. So Pierre Polyev is now the leader of His Majesty's official opposition. He plans to be prime minister after the next election, and if so, he's going to need more votes in more places than the Conservative Party of Canada received last time. And if his leadership campaign offers any indication, he knows precisely where to find those votes. By aligning himself with the anti-vaccine protests that came to Ottawa in February, threatening to fire the head of the Bank of Canada, and taking aim at the World Economic Forum, a popular target for conspiracy theorists, Polyev has won the support of those on the right who may have previously voted for the People's Party or not voted at all. Now, does Polyev believe in these causes or the conspiracy theories that are behind them? Probably not, but does it matter? He knows where the CPC can find the votes it needs to take power. So he's going after them. And hey, on one hand, that's just politics. It's what Polyev does should the CPC win that next election that will determine who he is and how we judge him. In theory, at least. On the other hand, recent history has seen plenty of examples of politicians who use fringe support among people who hold extremist views to gain power, and it doesn't usually end the way they think it will. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Justin Ling is a freelance investigative reporter. He covers misinformation and the far right, among many other topics. His work appears across Canada and also in his newsletter, which you can find on Substack. It's called Bug-Eyed and Shameless, and it is worth your time. Hello, Justin. Hey, how's it going? It's going very well. Thanks for making the time for us. Yeah, of course. Why don't we start with this? I'm not sure if you coined this phrase or um, if somebody else has and it's going around, but I hadn't heard it before. Paranoid populism. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, I mean, maybe I coined it. It it dawned on me that I didn't, I haven't really used it or seen it used all that often until I wrote this piece. So if I did, in fact, coin it, it's copyrighted Justin Lang 2020. Please credit me. But I think it's a useful term because... I think for a long time, we've started talking about populism in these very negative tones. And I'm not sure it's always been entirely fair. And I think it's been unfair to populists on the left and the right. Um, I I think why I've started using this phrase, paranoid populism, is because it, it describes a very particular brand of populism, one that largely talks in apocalyptic terms, one that warns of shadowy elites who are controlling and maybe even ruining your life. It is a, a form of populism that is very, not just adversarial, but very end times, right? There, there is constructive forms of populism, you know, one that tries to bring people together to say, you know, together 
where we can change something. There are, it are types of populism that, that brings people together to say, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong and we need to fix it. You know, it doesn't always have to be, you know, sunny disposition and smiles. It can be, in some cases, quite, you know, grit your teeth and let's get this done. And I think there's a ton of people on all sides of the spectrum who do that that brand of populism very well. And in fact, I think that, that type of populism is instrumental to any kind of democracy. And there's you know many good ways of doing it. But in particular, this form of paranoid populism, which I think you can ascribe to Donald Trump, uh, to Jair Bolsonaro, to, to many other people, Marine Le Pen in France, to maybe the Swedish Democrats in Sweden. There's all of these parties and candidates that have really effectively leveraged a sort of collective paranoia into scaring people to vote for them or into getting people so mad that they're voting against everything else. And it's not just a protest vote, but it's a vote to say, I want to wreck this system we have and and I don't even care what replaces it. I just, I just hate what we have right now so much. I have to tear it all apart. And you wrote about in your piece sort of the way Pierre Polyev, the new conservative leader, has been using or if not using, then at least uh, flirting with this kind of paranoid populism. And maybe before we get into that, why don't you kind of take us back to when we started to see this emerge? You mentioned Trump and Le Pen. Certainly, I think it came out of the Obama era and the alt-right rise in the United States, maybe? Oh, this this paranoid populism has been with us for at least a century. I mean, I think it's existed in one form or another earlier than that. Um, you know, there was an Illuminati scare in one of the first U.S. presidential elections um, that led to um, I, I believe it was Andrew Jackson accusing you know his his competitor of being funded and financed and helped by a British secret society. So this has been around for a while, but it, particularly in the 20th century, you started seeing the rise, and I think we've actually talked to maybe about some of this on the show before, but you've seen the rise of this, um, particularly in broadcast, on radio, the rise of this um, really paranoid idea that there is something deeply wrong in government, not just a bunch of people making bad choices or a bunch of people being in it for themselves, but the idea that there are people with uh, ulterior motives that are much grander than we can ever possibly imagine. And sometimes, actually often, that paranoia has, has you know, put a target on the back of the Jewish people. Um, you know, there was a, a, a broadcaster from Canada, in fact, who became one of the um, biggest broadcasters in the whole United States who, who largely, well, towards the end of his career anyway, um, peddled on the idea that the Jewish people were uh, had infiltrated and, and infected government and then international jewelry, as he called it, was an intense problem. Later in the 60s and 70s, you see that same mindset with someone like Carl McIntyre, also a broadcaster, who said communists had infiltrated government. The John Birch Society um, had, had levied the idea that John F. Kennedy Jr. was a communist agent, right? You know, this goes through the 20th century. You go to the 90s, the militia movement in America literally started setting up compounds on the idea that Bill Clinton was about to launch a holy war to destroy the Christian faith. Um, you know, 
the Oklahoma City bombing was con- was was conducted in part based on this paranoia that a civil war was coming, right? You know, this kind of, and there were people stoking these flames, right? There were people who were saying, we the masses, we the silent majority are real Americans, or in some cases, real Canadians, and we're the ones who are the, you know, the torchbearer for the, the, the founding ideas of this country, but the leadership, this international conspiracy, and sometimes they attributed this to the trilateral commission or the shadowy New World Order or the Bilderberg Group, but it's the, the shadowy manifest of people are out there trying to keep you down and we need to rise up and take, you know, take back our country, right? And so that kind of paranoid populism runs you know, right through the 20th century. Um, it actually had, a, I think, a fair, a fair number of years of slumber before finally getting really revived um, with some fits and starts, you know, through the uh, Tea Party movement in America, you know, through some some other kind of right-wing movements in America, but finally kind of coming to fruition under Donald Trump. And we should mention right here before we move on that, uh, Justin, y- you basically did an entire podcast on the rise of the alt-right and fringe right-wing radio, right? Yeah, it ended up being a very helpful background for where we find ourselves now. It's called The Flamethrowers. Uh, you can find it wherever you get your good podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote about this in relation to Polyev, as I mentioned. And I want to say that, you know, you said you're pretty sure that he's not out there the way his fringe supporters are. But tell me about how he uses this bit of paranoid populism to engage with the voters he's trying to win back to the conservative fold. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to watch Polyev make these moves because you know, he is not, as some others are, engaging in ethno-nationalism, right? You know, his message, um, you know, he has certainly said some controversial things in the past, but his message is really not about demonizing immigrants. Um, his message is not about demonizing LGBTQ people. You know, his form of populism knows exactly the right notes to play to engage those folks who have already become paranoid, um, you know, those masses who have already become disenchanted with kind of the entire system and will never listen to what it says. He's become very good at speaking their language. And, you know, some people... Give me an example of a couple of those notes, if you can, that he plays. So some, you know, Pierre Polyev, in announcing that he is going to ban his future cabinet ministers from visiting the World Economic Forum, knows exactly who he's speaking to. I've heard people try and explain this away to say, well, you know, well, the the World Economic Forum is no great organization and maybe we shouldn't go anyway. But ignores the fact that Pierre Polyev announced this policy for the first time in an interview with a guy who thinks that he's a Quebec uh, Facebook influencer who has uh, said Trudeau needs to be tried for treason, who believes the prime minister is an agent of a foreign government and is is working against the interests in Canada. Pierre Polyev first announced that policy in an interview with him. Pierre Polyev does not do a lot of interviews with people. He made that choice. You know, when Pierre Polyev talks about wanting to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, he's directly engaging with a, a raft of conspiracy theories on the far right that, that suggest the Bank of Canada is is going to destroy uh, capitalism or that it's going to introduce a digital currency. He's always still said he wouldn't do that. Going to introduce a digital currency that is going to abolish the dollar and make us all wage slaves, so on and so forth. People who want to return to the gold standard. Right, you know, he engages in in the exact language these people want to hear on these topics, and he knows exactly what he's doing. And I'll tell you why, because I've talked to the people who are behind Pierre Polyev, some of his organizers, some of his high profile endorsers. I've had arguments with them, right, because they know where I stand on this stuff. I think this stuff is really dangerous, and they're pretty open. They're saying, yeah. 
That's what we're doing. We're trying to engage the base. We're trying to engage people who went to the Freedom Convoy. We're trying to engage people who vote for Maxime Bernier's People's Party. We're trying to engage people who don't vote anymore, who have been so disgusted by everything. They've just left for whatever reason. People who are anti-vax, who have been, who feel like they've been marginalized by Justin Trudeau. That is who they're targeting. And they're actually pretty open about it when you talk to them in private. Now, their feeling is a little bit more altruistic, right? You know, they feel like they're giving these people a constructive outlet. They feel, Pierre Polyev's people feel like they're giving, in some cases, conspiracy theorists, some people, uh, sometimes people who've just fallen for disinformation, sometimes people who just kind of have some out there beliefs. Pierre Polyev's camp believes it's giving those people a constructive path forward to getting back into believing in the machinery of government. And I tell them, I believe that's unspeakably naive. Is this not exactly what we would have seen from American Republicans who were enabling Donald Trump in 2016 and beyond, right? The feeling that, well, he can bring us this big block of voters that can help us rise to power and then we can turn those voters into ordinary voters, or at the worst, we can just ignore them and govern normally. That's exactly the logic. I mean, and you've seen this repeat itself time and time again. It's what led David Cameron to launching a referendum on the UK's membership in the European Union. It's what led to many, uh, even social democratic parties across Europe adopting anti-immigrant and anti-refugee policies. You know, it's what's led um, to you know many politicians in the US, um, in Europe, in, in Australia, to engage with some of this conspiratorial base for maybe ambitious, self-serving reasons, maybe for altruistic reasons, but they found themselves taken over by this paranoid populism, right? They've found themselves completely incapable of harnessing and yield and wielding it, and instead have found themselves at the mercy of it. This the, There's very few exceptions where somebody has successfully sort of slapped a harness on this point, uh, on this paranoid populism, and, and kind of rode it to to great heights, right? Almost without fail, uh, those parties have either had to sell their core values, have had to um, you know jettison every sort of principle they they own in order to stay in power or stay popular, or they've been completely overrun by these populists. You know, look at Silvio Berlusconi, maybe one of the earliest examples of somebody who tried to do this. You know, he brought in a neo-fascist party into his elect coalition about two decades ago. And ever since, you know, he has seen his popularity slowly decline and the popularity of the far right slowly increase. We're going to go into an election in Italy in a few weeks, and it's all but certain the winner will be the center or the right-wing bloc. It will be led by the leader of a party that traces its lineage through some kind of twisty roads back to Silvio Berlusconi's part. Sorry, Sorry, what I should should have said there is um, it's all but certain that that in just a few weeks, Italy will go to the polls and elect a right-wing government led by a party that traces its lineage um, right back to Benito Mussolini's party. Right, so you know, that is a terrifying prospect, and one of the one of the junior parties is going to be Silvio Berlusconi, the man who spent decades as as the prime minister of Italy. Uh, so you know, we have to be sort of cognizant of the fact that this is electoral gamesmanship, but it's risking people's lives. It's risking the the, the real state of our democracy, and we should be really concerned about it. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. 
Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. I want to ask you about Polyev in particular and how hard uh, he's had to work to engage uh, this base and these fringe groups because when you look at Trump or when you, you may look at Jair Bolsonaro... Um, they are outsider figures. They can come in and say, like, yeah, I want to tear the whole system down. Look at this. It's not working. Polyev's background, I mean, he's been in government since he got his first job, right? Like, he has an extensive history working with the establishment conservatives and the rest of the Canadian government. How does he manage to turn around and sell himself to the conspiracy theorists? Well, I think for someone like Polyev, he sees it as a virtue, right? He looks at himself and goes, oh, well, you know, I'm not one of those, you know, outsiders who doesn't know how to do politics. I've been in politics my whole life. I know how to how to use these people to my ends. I mean, I think that's the logic. I mean, Pierre Polyev has never really had a job outside government. He has been a political creature since his teens. And there's something quite interesting here in that, you know, Pierre Polyev, I think, has made clear that he's basically willing to do or say anything, with some exceptions, with some limits, to win and to have his party win. I mean, he is a relentless partisan. I mean, you think back to almost a decade ago now, Pierre Polyev was Minister of Democratic Institutions. He introduced a bill that basically every expert said would fundamentally weaken our electoral system and p- probably to the benefit of the Conservative Party. You know, he went out there and, and stumped for that bill with a ferocity and an intensity and, and, and an aptitude, to be honest with you, that you don't see very often in politics. You know, I covered that bill pretty extensively. I interviewed Pierre Polyev. I scrum with him constantly. And I can tell you, I, don't, I have not dealt with a lot of ministers who know their file as well as he did. I mean, he knew exactly what was in that bill. And eventually, he had to walk it back. And, you know, he he fell on his sword for the boss and he pulled back that legislation and took it out behind the woodshed and shot it, right? Like, Pierre Polyev will do, um, up to now, he's done exactly what's asked of him. And and over the last number of, of months and years, he's done exactly what he thinks he needs to do to win. And if that means slapping around Sean Charest, if that means going scorched earth against Justin Trudeau, if that means uh, weaponizing a horde of anti-vaxxers who believe that um, the vaccines are killing scores of people, if that means um, utilizing folks who think the World Economic Forum is the single biggest threat to our democracy in the world, he's willing to do that. For him, those ends justify the means. And and, I've actually heard a sentiment from people. I mean, I, I, I get in these arguments with some folks around Paul you have folks I've known for, for quite some time. And, you know, I'll say to them, do you not see the risk here? Do you not see the risk of further radicalizing people, of worsening people's paranoia? And, you know, they say, well, it's what we needed to do to win. It's what we need to do to beat Justin Trudeau. And, and you know, I, I have to be blunt with some of these people and say, you know, listen, we've seen this happen before and we've seen domestic terror attacks come out of it. I'm not saying that at all you're encouraging it, but I'm saying you are reckless about it. You know, what happens if somebody who you know, believes the World Economic Forum is 
a fundamental threat to the country, goes to Switzerland and bombs their offices. You know, what if, what, what happens if, you know, somebody who believes that the vaccines are killing thousands of people, what happens if they go, you know, bomb the, the Moderna offices, right? You know, what happens then? Do you not feel any responsibility for worsening that? And, and you know, the, the response I get is kind of a shrug and say, you know, I hope that doesn't happen. You've been careful to say um, on this show and, and in your pieces, you know, that Polyev doesn't present himself as a white supremacist or a racist, um, that he is not who his fringe supporters are. Um, and I've seen some pushback to that, and and I think it's fair enough. Is that fair to say there's a lot of people who would consider that, you know, even more damaging because he's not putting it right out there the way, you know, the way I guess somebody like Maxime Bernier in Canada or other figures in the States are where you're like, okay, that guy is proposing to take us down a bad and dangerous path. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important that we engage with what people actually say, right? And 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 I know there's folks out there who will point to past statements from Pierre Polyev um, that have been certainly racially charged or outright racist, some cases, um, you know, anti-Indigenous. There's some old comments from him that are really quite bad. But I think we have to look at, you know, we have to give some amount of grace to people who have said bad things in the past to sort of walk them back and apologize. And he has. Um, I think we we have to engage with what he's actually saying. And what's he actually saying? I mean, he's talking about an, an immigration policy that's probably more inclusive and better than the one we have now. I mean, he's talking about a housing policy that will make uh, it m- easier for us to welcome people into this country, right? You know, and he's not using uh, immigrants or racial minorities or religious minorities uh, in order to to, to try and sow division. He was part of a government that did that, without a doubt. I mean, he's part of a government that promised a ban on religious symbols in the federal workplace. But I mean, that's not what he's proposing now. So I think we have to engage with what he's proposing now. And what's more, I think the more you write off him and his entire movement as white supremacists or even conspiracy theorists, I think you run the risk of just forcing people deeper into their ideological trenches. You know, I... I hope I'm making it abundantly clear that you know that Pierre Polyev is not trying. I don't think to you know, radicalize the entire conservative base. He just knows that there are those in the base who are radicalized, and he's trying to get them energized, get them excited, and he's trying to target those who have left the conservative party or maybe who have never joined it, who do believe in these conspiracy theories, who he can convince and and sort of cajole into the party and into voting for him. And I mean, we're talking about realistically somewhere between five and ten percent of the whole country maybe as high as 15, depending on what sort of polling and data you're looking at. These are people who don't vote, who vote for Maxine uh, Bernie's People's Party, or who vote conservative but are, are getting increasingly fed up with its, you know, in their mind, constant attempts to go to the center. So, you know, th- there are roughly 30% of the people in the country who vote conservative. Not every single one of them, you know, believes the vaccines are bad. We know the vast majority of them are vaccinated. We know the vast majority of them probably do, in, at least to some degree, you know, think that the world economic form is bad, but don't think it's a it's a you know malignant cancer on the country, right? So I think we do have to recognize that this is a matter of shades of gray. This is a matter of uh, proportions. This is not. We this cannot be an exercise in writing off every single conservative, every single vaccine skeptic, every even you know every single populist as being a danger to the country or or being an inherently bad person or a white supremacist. And you know it also is really important to note that even a ton of the people who believe these conspiracy theories can be perfectly reasonable on other things, right? You know, there are a ton of conspiracy theorists out there who think the vaccines are dangerous, who think there's a global plot 
here to you know reduce the population, but who also probably have some really sensible ideas about housing policy, or you know really really have a deep well of knowledge about what we should do on the agricultural front, right? So we we have to we have to figure out a way where we can talk to these people in a constructive manner that doesn't feed into that paranoia. And unfortunately, I don't think Polyev is doing that effectively. I think he's making everything worse. But I think is the door is open for someone else to do it because I have to say, you know, Jugmeet Singh has been missing in action. He's not even worth talking about it this point because he's just not been at the forefront of this fight and Justin Trudeau has consistently made it worse. Justin Trudeau has demonized these people. He has typecast them. He has made grand aspersions about their intent and their character and and you, know, you, you can argue that maybe in some cases he was right or getting at something valid but he's the damn prime minister. He should stop making this worse and he should stop using these people, much like Pierre Polyev does, to attack the Conservative Party because that's what he does. That's exactly his strategy is I'm going to make the Conservative Party, uh, you know, I'm going to make I'm going to make this you know five to ten percent fringe representative of the whole Conservative Party, and I'm going to keep hitting that home until centrists, until the broad 20, 30 percent of the country get so freaked out and afraid of the Conservative Party that it can't possibly vote for them. That's his tactic. That is. It's, I don't think it's worse than what Pierre Polyev does, but man, it's it's getting close because he knows exactly how angry and, and mad that makes people, and he knows exactly the consequences for it. And it's a cynical ploy on that side as well. I, I just happen to think Pierre Polyev is even more cynical. So this is the last thing I want to talk to you about now, and that's a great point about Trudeau because I want to ask you about you know, what the next election, whenever it is, could look like if we have... Polyev on one side, making sure that 10 to 15 percent base is engaged because he hopes that will put him over the top. And Trudeau on the other side, needing that 10 to 15 percent base to represent the Conservative Party as a whole because he knows that's what keeps him in power. So both sides are playing to the worst elements of the fringe. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's basically right. I mean, you know, let, let's talk about Pierre Polyev's math, right? He has looked back on two previous leaders of the Conservative Party who have, in their leadership races, to varying degrees, run to the right, you know, run as, as Aaron O'Toole called it, a true blue conservative, tried talking to gun owners, um, you know, aggressively against federal gun legislation, have, have tried talking to social conservatives, uh, and then in a general have abandoned all that and pivoted to the center and pretended like they never said those things, right? And and, and that is cynical in a whole different kind of way. Um, but in both those instances, the, those conservative leaders have utterly failed to convince the, the you know, those moderates, those centrists, those kind of swing voters, that they're genuine and, and earnest. And the prime minister has done an extraordinary job, in a way that I think is harmful to our democracy, of, of trying to skewer those conservative leaders as, as liars and frauds and having a secret agenda, right? And it's been very effective. And what's happened is either that, that those centrist swing voters stay put in the Liberal Party, or for every one of them who leaves to join the conservative movement, Trudeau has managed to steal those voters away from the Green Party or the Bloc or the NDP, right? So there's always kind of a balancing act that goes on there. And that has been a winner strategy for Trudeau since he was first elected. Now, Pierre Polyev realizes that. I mean, you know, they are very blunt. They they do not think they can win voters in the center. They have basically said they're going, you know, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are going to beat us over the head with so much of this stuff, whether it's, you know, we're going to put guns on the street or we're going to ban abortion or we're going to, you know, launch another freedom convoy. Pierre Polyev's team looks at this and goes, 
those centrist voters are lost. If we can win them over, great. If we can win some disaffected leftist voters, wonderful. We'll talk about housing and we'll talk about these other things. But where they see victory coming from is by peeling off two or three or four points from the People's Party and from non-voters, and then energizing that that conservative base so aggressively that they come out to these big rallies, that they talk about it on social media, that they donate a ton of money, and they create this feeling of massive momentum that is inescapable. And what's more, they also create this narrative that the media is out to get him because he's so popular, the liberal establishment's out to destroy him because he has this runaway train, and I think it could work, right? Like, I think that math works out for me. I mean, if the Conservative Party keeps their 31, 32, 33% of the population that's voted for them pretty consistently over the last few elections and adds two, three, four points on the side, on the right-wing flank, yeah, I think they, they might well win. And Trudeau, when he sees that, is going to go nuclear. And it's going to be ugly. It's going to be brutal. Nobody is going to be looking out for the interests of the country or democracy. Everybody will be campaigning for their own political survival. And I, I genuinely think it's going to be very bad. And if Polyev wins, he's then beholden to the base that got him over the top, right? And if he thinks he can govern without them, I wish him all the luck, but I don't think it's going to work that way. Justin, thank you for this enlightening and, as always, optimistic walk through our politics. You always give me the, the, the most dour topic. Well, I mean, let's uh, scroll through the topics on your blog right now and see where the happy ones are. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, you know... No, I hear that. No, I hear that. If you want to cover the Tulip Festival next year, we'll have you back on. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next year for the Tulip Festival. Thanks again, Justin. Thanks. That's Justin Ling, and you can find more of his work at bugeyedandshameless.com. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Talk to us anytime via email hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And if you want to, Pick up the phone, give us a call, leave us a voicemail, 416-935-5935. You can find this podcast wherever you get yours, and if you're just hanging around the house and you don't want to bother picking up an app, ask your smart speaker to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.